This is a re-airing of a show from March 2021 for Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets, now available at last in paperback. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. I'm happy to report that my guest today is a debut novelist. His name is Robert Jones Jr. The book is called The Prophets. It's gotten extraordinary reviews from all sorts of people I like, ranging from Marlon James to Edmund White. It's really an extraordinary book because it's asking the reader to imagine what it would be like if the Africans who were brought here and turned into slaves um, were in fact to include two men who were having a relationship with one another. Um, I have been asked that the word gay replace the word homosexual. Whatever word you feel most comfortable with is the word that feels the right one for me. Now, the author's name is Robert Jones Jr. And among the dedications at the front of the book are Mother Morrison and Father Baldwin. I assume that's Mother Toni Morrison and Father James Baldwin. And I know that you've spoken of Mother Morrison with great regard and have explained that one of the things she told young writers was to write the book you wanted to read. What is it about the prophets, Robert, that you most would want to have read? When I was in undergrad, um, Africana studies was my minor, and I got to read so many great books by so many great um, Black literary um, luminaries. And um, something struck me as rather odd. Um, Prior to the Harlem Renaissance period in history, there is zero mention of the Black queer figure or what we now call queer or gay or whatever term we're using. And that made me feel erased. Um, Every other demographic can trace their roots all the way back to whenever, um, to some, some antiquated or ancient period. But the Black queer figure did not have that same privilege. And it started me on a quest to look for the Black queer figure in history prior to the Harlem Renaissance. And unfortunately, I could only find um, those aspects in um, under the context of, say, rape culture and sexual assault. So they would mention, for example, in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, um, there's a sentence that describes a slave master raping a male slave. And then in Toni Morrison's work in Beloved, she describes one of her characters, Paul D, being sexually assaulted by a male overseer. And I thought, well, yeah, that was probably true. Those things probably did happen to enslaved men, but what about love? 
And that is where Toni Morrison came back to me and, and spoke to my spirit when she said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it. And I knew I would have to go about the daunting task, the terrifying task of writing a book in which I imagined two enslaved young men being in love in a relationship during antebellum slavery. Now, one of those young men, Isaiah, is described as having a remarkable smile. And I notice on the back of the book cover, so do you. Are these figures in any way representative of the life that you lead with your lover? I suppose in some respects that um, my life as a black queer man um, living in a white supremacist capitalist um, patriarchy um, had informed my um, construction of these characters, in particular Samuel and Isaiah. Um, maybe not so obviously, but maybe in, in some um, subversive, uh, surreptitious ways, but certainly um, the broad strokes of Samuel um, in his um, anger at the uh, injustice of the situation he and, and Isaiah find themselves in. And in Isaiah's um, more um, timid, sort of thoughtful ways about going about achieving liberation, perhaps there is some representation of me in those aspects. Among the many things I like, having done my research about you, is that you're a big fan, as am I, of the writer Gail Jones, who had studied at Brown University, whose first novel, Corrigidora, moved me very, very deeply. And I've read most everything she's written since. And I notice that it's as if, again, She's been virtually forgotten by a whole generation of readers, including black readers, but she's one of the best people alive and writing in America today. And I assume you agree. I absolutely 120% agree with that assessment. And um, it, it should be, we should note that her first book, um, Toni Morrison was the editor of Corregidora um, and brought Gail Jones to us. I um, didn't know that. Oh, that's great. I had no idea. Now, listen, listeners, it's G-A-Y-L Jones. You know how to spell Jones, but don't, don't miss her. I was taking an African-American literature course, and we were assigned Corregidora, and it was startling. I, I, my mind was blown wide open not just by the subject matter um, and, and the ways in which she ex excavates um, how the transatlantic slave trade sort of um, moved to South America too, where Brazil had the largest slave population um, and has currently the largest black population outside of Nigeria and Africa. Um, but I was also moved by the, the sentences themselves. And I just thought, who is this woman and how do I find the rest of her books? And why isn't she celebrated? And that is, that is one of the grandest questions. Why isn't Gail Jones 
a mandatory read. I'm talking, by the way, to Robert Jones Jr., the author of first novel, The Prophets. Now tell me, in The Prophets, you take many risks, not just in the poetry of the writing, but in the very intense finger-pointing. There is nothing to be done to save these two young men who, once Christianity is introduced by a um, would-be preacher named Amos, he gets the owner's approval to teach the slaves from the New Testament, saying that when they learn their New Testament, they will be less inclined to rebel. It's a very shocking thing because, well, you know, I'm a Jew whose family were slaves in Russia, and, you know, we sang the song when Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. And I think there are many, many more peoples on earth who know about the experience of slavery than one would like to admit. And in this book, we're entering the darkest heart of slavery. Did it make it harder to write? In a sense, yes, um, because these are essentially my ancestors I'm writing about. And there is um, a concept in, in my community, in my lineage that we call blood memory. And so when I wrote about Samuel and Isaiah and Maggie and Sarah and the others experiencing these brutalities, in some sense, I felt them um, literally against my skin. My skin would burn as though I too was being punished. And that did make it difficult and it did um, make me walk away from writing the manuscript. Quite often, I would go take a walk in my neighborhood. I would go visit the botanical gardens up in the Bronx. I would go visit my nieces, nephews, and nibblings. Nibbling is the non-binary term for niece or nephew. Um, to to hear their laughter because children's laughter is so restorative. I meditated. I did whatever I could to um, bring myself back because what many people don't know about the process of writing is that you really delve into it. It's almost like you're living in it um, as it is happening, as you are writing it. And so you experience things, you experience things you didn't think that you would experience. I want to say that the process of reading is like that as well. That with a book like this, I felt so consumed by the book, um, even though I am a descendant of slaves, I felt ashamed to be white and part of the culture that treated these characters who I'd come to love so deeply and so complicatedly in such terrifying and horrible ways. Well, I completely understand. And that is actually part of the reason why I wanted to imbue the book with as much love and hope as I possibly could, even though the circumstances were so dire, because I realized if it's having this kind of effect on me, I can only imagine the effect it's going to have on the reader. But at the same time, my ancestors who were speaking to me the entire time that I was writing this book said, young man, we actually endured this. We're just asking you to witness it. The least you can do is share our testimony. 
And it was that sense that kept me going, that kept me returning to this book, which took me 14 years to write. I think that Toni Morrison would have felt the same way. I think that when she discovered that horrible device that is applied to the face of a slave to keep his mouth shut, to keep him from speaking, I think that she felt so much horror that she knew she had the book Beloved under her control. Um, oh, that, that masterpiece. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why I could write something like The Prophets. Toni Morrison showed me that in a story about enslaved people, slavery is not the character. That these people that we call slaves or, or we used to call slaves until we realized that slave is a non-person and that these people were enslaved. Something was happening to them. They were not the thing that was happening to them. You have to invest them in their lives with so much um, dimensionality and interiority. And that is what I tried to do in The Prophets. Well, a terrible thing once happened to me, and it happened on the air. I was talking to Alice Walker, and I talked about slaves being brought over from Africa. And Alice said to me, slaves were not brought over from Africa. People were brought over from Africa, and they were turned into slaves. And I felt so embarrassed. I apologized immediately. Um, but she was absolutely right. And we make mistakes like this to make slaves a person rather than to understand that a person has been taken and turned horribly and painfully into a slave, even by masters who want to be or think of themselves as humans. There's a character in this book who falls in love with both of the boys who live in the barn and he attempts to seduce them, but he's seducing them away from one another. He is stealing them from each other, and the shock, even though he's spending hours and hours of his days painting portraits of one of them, his invasion of their privacy is a terrifying and very dark thing. You're speaking of Timothy, the plantation owner's son, and Timothy is in this strange position. So he's raised to believe that the Negroes are beneath him and inferior and non-people. But then he goes to the North and he's exposed to different ideas about um, the institution of slavery and those who are enslaved. And so now he has these two conflicting ideas inside his person and he's trying to reckon with them in, and failing horribly, but trying. And that is the big tragedy of, of Timothy, is that he's trying to be a better person, and he thinks he is a better person, but he, he's actually perpetuating the same um, crimes that his parents are, but just with a, with a different twist. Now, Robert, I want you to do me a favor and answer a question that I suspect no one wants to ask you. Who are the prophets? The prophets are everyone... Every single character in that book is in some way a prophet, because what the prophets do, at least biblically, is give us warnings, tell us great wisdom, um, pass on knowledge that we're, we're supposed to use and heed. And 
in, in their own way, each of these characters, including the ancestral voices that we hear weaved throughout, are doing exactly that. Even Paul, the um, slave owner, the um, plantation owner, he is in, him, in, in, in and of himself a, a warning uh, about what we can become and, and what consequences we could have for becoming that thing. So in, in, in those ways, I think that every single character in this book is a prophet. Well, the voices of the ancestors, the names, so many of which come from the Old Testament, all seem to be speaking to me about the ancestral generations and the way in which not the New Testament, but the Old Testament speaks about the coming of slavery to Egypt, the building of the pyramids, that most of our world monuments were created by the so-called institution of slavery. And we enjoy forgetting that. And one of the things that your book does not want us to do is to forget a thing about the ancestors. The ancestors are speaking to us constantly. Absolutely, in ways that are both terrifying and edifying. And I wanted to sort of tap into that. I wanted to be still and listen as intently as I possibly could. So much of the, the writing of this book occurred during the witching hour or the magic hour, 3 a.m. my time. And um, that was when, for me, the world was most quiet and I could hear those voices. The, one of those voices, in fact, came to me in a dream and said to me, you do not yet know us. And that is how I get the first line of the book is, is, is from a, a literal dream that I had that I scribbled down in the middle of the night when I woke up and, and went back to sleep and thought nothing of it until I woke up the next morning with my notepad to see what I had scribbled down and saw that and said, oh, these are the ancestors telling me not only do I have to listen to them, but they want a part in this book. They want to be able to talk to not just me, but to these characters and also to the reader. I think they're the ongoing voice, the undertone of the book. And I think that we're hearing from them all the time. I think that they're teaching the characters, all of them, the poetry of moving beyond direct statement into rich and complex rhythmic statement, which defines the specific individuality of this book. I'm Michael Silverblatt, and you're listening to Bookworm. I'm talking with Robert Jones Jr. about his impressive debut novel, The Prophets. We'll continue after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. 
This is a re-airing of a show from March 2021 for Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets, now available at last in paperback. I'm Michael Silverblatt, this is Bookworm, and I'm talking with Robert Jones Jr. about his debut novel, The Prophets, poetic prose about a gay-black relationship on a plantation prior to the Civil War. Now, this book, to my mind, takes many risks, and one of its greatest risks is to write in a poetic prose that you invent for this book. How long did it take you to feel comfortable writing in this extraordinary voice? And that's a great question because when I go back to the earlier drafts, even the first, very first draft that I wrote of this in 2006, the language is much more plain. Um, it's much more informational. Um, so, and, and I, as I look at those drafts and I, I peel back the years, I, I see how inch by inch, I start to incorporate a more poetic prose, a more lyrical prose, um, which I think was really the influence of not just Toni Morrison, who was the biggest influence of, on my decision to write in that manner, but also the influence of music, because I was listening to a lot of Mahalia Jackson and Bessie Smith, as well as um, Ma Rainey and Sade and Janet Jackson and so many others um, to help me sort of find the rhythm of, of what, what I needed to write. Um, and so I think those are the influences that gave me the confidence. And as it took me, I would say at least seven, maybe eight years to feel comfortable writing that way? You know, the American novel, at least in its most recent years, is not well known for its poetic prose. Some of that has dropped away. We don't even, I would say, have Nabokovs anymore, people whose prose is so self-wrought that we can't compare it to anyone else's prose. The pleasure for me in reading Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets is that you're reading a book whose prose is taking an enormous number of risks. Not only are these people being turned gradually into animals, animals are being rescued in the course of this novel as being the creatures that give us milk, that give us meat, they are in certain ways being treated with greater respect than the black people in the book. And it's one of the things, well, I thought you were really taking extraordinarily great risks in bringing this to the consciousness of readers. One of the things, Michael, that I discovered in writing this novel, and I, I so hate to say this, but I find it to be true, is how little things have changed. I mean, certainly Black people are not being forced to work on cotton plantations, but the prison industrial complex is doing essentially the same thing to Black people in this very day. So we don't have overseers anymore whipping us to try to make us work. 
but we do have police officers who are kneeling on our necks and, and taking the, the life right out of our bodies on camera without compunction. So I, what I recognized about anti-Blackness in writing this book was that it has this marvelous and frightening ability to morph with the times so that for every epoch it, it shows up in, it suits the, the sensibilities of the people of that time such that they don't regard it as anything strange or unusual, that it becomes part of the landscape. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, I know it's risky, but um, part of that risk was, was so edifying for me. I learned so much. Until very recently, and in fact, for the last 32 years, my guests were always face to face with me at the studio. We can't see each other right now, but if you could see me, you would see that I'm crying. And that's one of the effects that the book had on me. Um, you know, we are facing a time where the recognition that Black Lives Matter is being directly confronted by the police wherever we might happen to live. And that is, in fact, I think, one of the acts of great modernity in your book, The Prophets. You're not making any claims for rescue. You are saying this is the book that you have to read if you even want to begin to escape this curse. That is exactly right. Um, one of the things that I um, learned from James Baldwin and Alice Walker's works is that there are no innocents. No one is innocent. We are all implicated. And because we are all implicated, we all have this work to, to do, every single one of us. Innocence, as Baldwin said, is the crime because it makes you think you're exempt from having to do any work from having to take any responsibility, for having to be held accountable. Um, and so with the prophets, I, I wanna acknowledge that there are no saviors, no one's coming to rescue us. It is all up to us, each individual, to fix this. Otherwise, we're doomed. I've been talking with Robert Jones Jr. His first novel is The Prophets, Thank you, Robert, for joining me. I think it's a magnificent book, and I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you. It is my esteemed honor and pleasure and privilege to be here talking with you too, Michael Silverblatt. Thank you so much for having me on Bookworm. I am very grateful to you. I want to tell my listeners that due to the pandemic, we are each taping remotely, so you may hear unusual sounds. You can visit kcrw.com slash bookworm for a podcast of today's show, also available at Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast services. It can also be listened to on demand with KCRW's smartphone apps. You know, if you listen to Bookworm, I don't frequently have authors on with their first book. I've usually waited until there's two, three, four, or even more. But I felt that the prophets made such an impression on me and to many, many of its readers. And I want to 
thank Robert Jones Jr. for joining us today. Special thanks, too, to Bookworm Show collaborators Alan Howard and Sean Sullivan, engineer Desmond Taylor, and technical director P.J. Shahamet. I'm Michael Silverblatt. Join me again next time on Bookworm. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.